Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here. Welcome to another episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Greybeards bloggers together with storage assistant vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. podcast where we discuss the year's technology trends and what to look forward for for the next year. Matt and Keith, what would you like to talk about? You know what, uh, Ray, I would be extremely upset if we don't start the conversation off with Kubernetes. Like, I'm just going to be, I'm going to explode. (laughs) That's good. I I think Kubernetes is the biggest story going here this, this year. But, you know, there's some that some would say not. I would say not. I think there's a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of vendors that have entered the space. We did in the past few months. We've probably talked to what about five storage vendors that are you know all in on uh, Kubernetes. So I think from a storage vendor perspective, it is definitely a hot topic. Is it a hot st- topic from a customer perspective? That you know, I, I think there's some nuance there. I think there's. I think the enterprise is starting to wake up and notice what's going on there, and they're starting to. You know, all these guys that we talk to about storage, the reason that they're talking storage and Kubernetes is because the enterprise is driving them there. Yeah, and and let's let's face it, you know, uh, the migration of uh, an app or workload or even a cluster from site to site is relatively trivial. It's the, within, exactly, but the storage associated with those apps and migrating that, that storage so that, you know, you reduce your downtime and, and your ability to, in a uh, quote-unquote multi-cloud world, uh, maintain those dynamics. There's a lot of interesting solutions on the storage side. The trouble is not the apps. The trouble is the data. How to get the data to, you know, some disaster recovery location. I mean, the recent AWS failure is I've getting calls from people all over the place to want to talk about what, what the solution to that is. The solution is disaster recovery. And how do you get disaster recovery? The key is the data. Yeah, so this is where I have a problem with Kubernetes. Like the the message from the, as Kubernetes developed over the past few years, the absolute message from the experts, the people who wrote Kubernetes the hard way, the Kelsey Towers, high towers of the world, is Kubernetes is not for persistent applications or persistent data. We have shoehorned it in because that's what that's where the hot thing is at. There are umpteen dozen solutions to replicate data. We're the I think the solutions that we all looked at over the past few weeks or the past few months are bending backwards to do it in a in a in the way that that benefits the Kubernetes, the pure Kubernetes, not necessarily put Kubernetes solutions, but people who sell Kubernetes. Yeah, and I would agree. I think that, um, you know, we, we've looked at this sort of uh, from a granular perspective, but from a, from a macro, we have to recognize that there's a lot of ways to skin a cat uh, and a lot of enterprises are used to I wouldn't call them server huggers, but maybe virtual server huggers. Excuse my tongue there. Um, But it it may just be that that continuing to leverage 
virtual machines is, if not a the lion's share of today's architecture, but uh, it, it may be right for a lot of workloads moving forward that, you know, a, a Kubernetes architecture may not be ideal for. I'm struggling here, right? I'm not... I use Docker containers and all that stuff, and some of my some of my personal stuff. And uh, containers are interesting; they're useful and they're and they're very flexible, and they can run just about anywhere. And that's the advantage here. And the other advantage is the scalability thing. In in my eyes, Kubernetes is the cloud of the future. It's got everything the cloud has to to some extent with respect to scale, with respect to you know. Um, <laughs> functionality with respect to portability it's got it doesn't have the hardware it's not like you could spin up you know a a, a 20 node kubernetes cluster and then tomorrow decide i want to go to 100 nodes but everything else it seems to be there it's that it's that automation yeah so ray i would agree with you if you're in the business of building clouds if you're in the business of building clouds and you want to compete against the aws the azures the Googles and the Oracles of the world, go and build it on Kubernetes. If you're in the business of building applications and you need application platforms, go and consume cloud. Now, if that cloud just happens to be built on Kubernetes, great. If that cloud is built on something else, also great. But the enterprise has gotten to this whole contest on, can I build cloud better than the cloud providers or even on par with the cloud providers. Interesting stack from, I think it was IDC, 88% of enterprises want cloud native applications on-prem so they they can repatriate um, static workloads from the public cloud. So this is not, these are not things built on VMs. This is stuff built with cloud interfaces, but scale breaks all things. And I don't think most enterprises has any business rolling Kubernetes of their own, period, or even consuming it directly. Ah, my God, <laughs> Keith. Yeah, I mean that's a bold statement. Yeah, um, and I've been pretty consistent with it. It's, uh, this is what I say at last year. It's what I say at the year before. And, and so, it may be because, it, to a greater extent, Keith, uh, the Kubernetes architectures are nascent. Um, and I, you know, I think that it's maturing and, and Nascent, yes, maturing. you did say it last year. Non-enterprise. Well, I think maybe next year we may find that, um, you know, it, it, and it involves a lot of things. Orchestration is a big part of it, but, um, I, I think you're going to find that, uh, more companies are building their apps, more enterprise customers, uh, are are either building in the cloud or even building um, their Kubernetes architecture in in their own data center. But what they really want is the ability to migrate it to the cloud provider that makes the most sense. So it it may reside in their data center, but they may want it to sit on GCP or AWS or or whomever. And and that's where the 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 bugaboo is here. When you when you think about this. And about the ability to mi- migrate your workloads in multi-cloud, you've got networking issues, you've got storage issues, uh, and, and none of it is as simple as it would be in a hybrid cloud environment. All of it gets a, a degree of complexity that goes far beyond 
what we were talking about last year. So Matt, why don't you define the distinction between hybrid cloud and multi-cloud in your mind? In, well, in my mind, and, and I'm not sure that I'm the be-all and end-all answer to that question, but I, I think a hybrid situation would be we have a, an AWS infrastructure that we're consuming, and we have a, an on-prem infrastructure that we're consuming, and that's hybrid, right? And, and the ability to move your workloads in the data center and out of the data center to another hyperscaler is valuable. But in a multi-cloud situation, we add AWS, GCP, Azure, uh, who, who the heck knows? IBM who, the and next all those other guys. Exactly. Um, and that and multi-prem or no? Or is on-prem an option there? I still think that due to latency issues, we're going to find that on-prem is a valid solution in many workload cases. And even for the multi-cloud. So on-prem is still a place in the multi-cloud. It's just, just a lot more cloud vendors in, in that solution space. Exactly. So exactly. Guys, I, I, view the, I, I view it slightly different. I partially agree. Cloud is a is a operating model, not a place. So if we, we accept that cloud is an operating model and not a place, for me, hybrid cloud is I have a cloud that uh, goes across different providers, but I have a cloud that is uh, consistent across multi multiple providers, whether that's talking, private you're data. You're talking VMware, Cloud Foundry, and those sorts of things. So you could you could run this thing everywhere, right? Yeah, that. Yeah, VMware, VMware Cloud could, could be an example, but a, uh, another example is that I have Kubernetes. I'm using EKS in uh, in the in AWS, and I'm using VMware Tanzu, but I'm managing it via VMware uh, Tanzu Mission Control. A hybrid, a multi-cloud is that I have multiple cloud control panels. So I have AWS, I have Azure, I have my on-premises cloud, and I have three different operating models for how I do cloud. And then we define hybrid infrastructure is that simply I have two different operating models. I have a, I have an operating model, which I take legacy, like a VM approach, whether that VM approach is in public cloud or on premises, but there's a VM approach. And then I, I'm consuming a cloud control plane, like an AWS, et cetera. But where does OpenShift so OpenShift would be a hybrid cloud because I'm using OpenShift across, yeah, I can run it across multiple clouds, but I have a consistent operating model across those clouds. So yeah, so your distinction then, if I read this correctly, is hybrid cloud is one operating model regardless of where it runs. Right. And multi-cloud is multiple operating models that, that span cloud and on-prem. Yes, and multi-hybrid and uh, hybrid infrastructure so your multi-cloud or your hybrid cloud can ride on top of a hybrid infrastructure, whereas I'm sharing responsibility. I have a colo, I have private, I have private cloud, and I have public data center, and I'm just using that as the underlay hybrid infrastructure. So my multi-cloud or hybrid cloud runs on top of those yeah. of that infrastructure. I, I I truly don't believe that you know your your average IT staff is going to embrace multiple operating models for multiple different platforms. But they have. They have Azure. They have Salesforce. Only they because have. they need to. So they have. They, they, they may not want to. They yeah, they, they may not want to, but they have. Yeah. Uh, so, so the goal is to simplify that. 
And the question is, can you simplify and Kubernetes it? Kubernetes is the answer. Yes, you can. Kubernetes does not <laughs> simplify it. Kubernetes gives you a consistent infrastructure, a, a consistent operating model, but that by far isn't simple. Like, yeah, it's, it, it, it's not simple. It, it's You're solving a complex thing with a complex solution. So what's the brass ring, though? The goal that we're all shooting for? The brass for? ring is a, simpl a simplified Kubernetes. Is OpenShift the answer? Uh, I think it might be, at least for an orchestration layer, uh, maybe Ansible for, uh, you know, your com composition side of the equation. Also, um, also Red Hat solution. <laughs> well, not, not that I'm biased. I'm not quick. I'm not quick to say that there's a solution. I, I'm, I'm saying that this is a this is a problem that's unsolved right now. Well, yes. And that's the way the industry is going. I think I think there's a lot of ideas. And I think there's just no if if somebody said, you know what, I want to buy the brass ring, the brass ring is still being molded. Yeah, but we're closer and closer. But here's here's the challenge. Here I've got my you know I got my set of app enterprise applications that I've been running for five, ten, fifteen years that depend on databases, that depend on you know transaction processing, depends on you know VMware infrastructure and those sorts of things. And I see the cloud and all this stuff, and I say, you know, I really want to have the portability. I really want to have the scalability. And if anything, that's where I think the world needs to go. Of and, course. And how do I get there? And I'm telling you, if you can chase it now if you want, but you're going to spin your tires at this moment. It's not a finished. It's there. It's like when VMware eight years ago, when VMware sold the IBM Software Defined Data Center, it's aspirational. Could you buy it eight years ago? No. Is it there today? Yes. The the vision is right. There the maturity isn't there. But right. But but, but Kubernetes is running millions <laughs> of applications already today. It's, it's been running for a decade almost. Would it be fair to say Kubernetes is not bigger than AWS? Kubernetes is bigger than AWS. No, I'm talking about the number of workloads. The number of workloads running on Kubernetes around the world versus number of workloads running on AWS, I think they're almost equivalent. So if they're almost equivalent, AWS, uh, Amazon has said that they don't believe that uh, more than 5, five to 15% of the workloads in the world are in public cloud. There's a VIN, there's an overlap between those running in, Kuber in Kubernetes and public cloud. So that by definition, there's less than 15% of, and I think it's way less than 15% of the world's workloads are running on Kubernetes. Kubernetes is a blip, is a blip in the, it's a, right now it's a blip on the pimple of the butt of enterprise <laughs> IT. Whoa. The, the, <laughs> from a, from a size perspective, it is a blip on the butt. Like it is. Are you okay. saying there's no Kubernetes running on-prem? No, I'm saying it's a blip on the butt. It's a pimple on the butt. It's, it's there, but it's not more than 5% of the workloads in enterprise IT. It's just not. Wow. Well, what, what we do have is a, is a ton of legacy stuff. And, uh, you know, the, the enterprise IT organization is going to say, this works for us. Why are we messing with it? Uh, and... And and so you're you're probably right. There's very few Lotus Notes environments that are being migrated to Kubernetes. Oh I gotta I gotta take this blip apart here. 
who do you think where do you think all these let's call it sale salesforce and 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 dropbox and 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 box and you know the the thousand other as a service solutions what do you think they're running internally so the thousands of as a service solutions some of them are running not all of them some of them are running on native aws services uh some of them are running on native azure services some of them are running on kubernetes the millions of IT systems running out there are not running on Kubernetes. So yes, I agree with you. The thousands are running on Kubernetes. The millions. All right, all right, all right, all right. So now, now we have to talk about how you define. You know, you're talking about numbers of unique workloads or the number, of, the amount of processing power devoted to those workloads. I guess the number of unique, the the overall effort, the the overall effort to run enterprise IT. The overall effort to run, and if our audience is primary enterprise IT folks and what they care about, chances are you're not working at drop and listening to listening to this podcast. The chances are you're running enterprise, you're running SAP, you're running some uh, Oracle databases, and then you have some new stuff that you have to deal with. And the new stuff is interesting, but it's not the majority of your job. I, you know, I think I would agree with that, Keith. Not, not that I want to want to be ameliorating the, for the audience, but but I think that there is a differentiation here, and that the differentiation is legacy versus new. And I agree with all that, and I agree with the, you know the number of unique workloads. You know, we've been doing data processing since the you know literally the fifties, and all those unique workloads are, are significant. But the amount of processing that's going on and doing actual work today. I gotta believe that Kubernetes is running more processing power than just about anything else in the world. I, I wouldn't argue against you, right? The question is when a CIO looks at his resource budget and they say, okay, my people resources, because Kubernetes is running most pro the more processing than anywhere in the world, I'm magically gonna get more Kubernetes people than I am people that's, you know, 95% of my environment. So the reality is, yes, the new stuff is faster, bigger, stronger, and it's more stuff. When we're talking, when I talk to CIOs, CTOs, they're talking about all their stuff. They're not just talking about Kubernetes. They're talking about all their stuff and the stuff that they're in. Kubernetes is interesting and it's part of their stuff and they're building new stuff on there. But that deck alpha system that on the floor <laughs> manufacturing is just as important yeah. as the Kubernetes system. That deck alpha system goes down. They're not. They're not making money. So you're you're saying we're not getting rid of mainframes anytime soon? We're not getting rid of mainframes. We're not getting rid of GM. You know what? Uh, the uh, uh, I just talked to Walmart, and they have plenty of OpenStack. Like, and they're not planning on moving off of it. So are they running it on their Vax though? The, the <laughs> Kubernetes is just going to be another <laughs> one of the things over the next five to ten years that's running in your data center. All right, that's fair. It's it's you know, the old stuff never goes away. What happens is that the new stuff moves to whatever the the latest technology is, and that stuff ultimately, you know, processing wise, it it, it provides more and more power because you can there, you know. It, and let and let's face it, it's easier to migrate off of an AS four hundred onto Linux than it is to migrate off a thirty two seven. You don't want me to start talking about old architecture. We'll never get off this discussion. <laughs> All right. So we kind of bandied Kubernetes to death here. 
But so the next thing I wanted, I thought was kind of interesting. That's that seems to be another one of these emergent topics for the enterprise is AI. I, it's it's just it's just every time I look, I'm seeing yet another solution that's based on AI. And it used to be it was just AI washing, like cloud washing. But nowadays we're actually talking real AI. We're talking deep neural nets. We're talking data, you know, up the kazoo in order to train these these models and stuff. Well, you know, they're, they're the, the key differentiator there and the enabling technology there is the advent of the GPU and the multi-GPU uh, per server architectures that we're able to see. We're able to process um, a, a very different paradigm than we were on standard x86 or Unix systems. Yeah, I mean, and it, the, the key moment in my in my mind was that uh, VMware and VMworld this year talked about, you know, adopting NVIDIA's AI suite and, and multi-GPUs and, multi -GPUs and, and uh, MIG and all this other stuff, which is, which is pretty sophisticated stuff that they're starting to come out with. Yeah, it's been a big year for NVIDIA. Oh, it's, yeah, it's always been a big year for <laughs> NVIDIA. <laughs> yeah, they're just figuring out. They're, they're, I, I did some content with them this year, and they're trying to figure out a couple of things. One, they're trying to figure out how to make AI accessible downstream. So when you're thinking about data scientists at Georgia Tech and uh, that training program, how do you take one of their big multi-GPU boxes and uh, carve it up, virtualize, basically solve old problems in, in new uh, sheep's yeah, they got this hardware architecture that's over overcoming, yeah. and how do they curve, carve it up and virtualize it so everybody can use it? Exactly. And then uh, the second problem is uh, this stuff simply moves too fast. I'm not going to recommend a customer go out and buy a 32 GPU HPC cluster and then maintain that. You absolutely need to figure out how you're going to rent it and then use it and then uh do with it as you please. And then there's the problem of data movement. How do you get the data close enough to that compute? You know, this data gravity problem, I'm doing something with Dave McCory next month. And we're, we're talking about his uh, data uh, gravity index. Maybe that's a better podcast for the gray beers on storage. We'll talk about that, Ray. But, you know, the data gravity index and how do you, you know, how do you, how do you deal with this stuff from a practical perspective? I think the other thing that's apparent is that, you know, um, where it used to be, you know, I go in and I train a model and I kind of deploy it by hand and all this stuff. All these solutions are starting to come out of the woodwork that have been there for a while. Kubeflow, MLOps, SageMaker, Vertex or whatever the thing on Google is. I mean, these things have been there for a while, but now they're starting to become real. Yeah, I think uh, Google just announced, I think it's called uh, SageMaker IQ, in which the target for that product is literally the business user being able to say, okay, I don't need to take a, I don't need to hire a data scientist. I can, matter of fact, say make sure IQ tells me what the interesting data is similar to how a data scientist would tell me what interesting, what interesting information is in the data. And that's like, that's Nirvana. I don't know. I don't know how good it is, but that's the problem. Look at what NVIDIA is doing there. They've got their own library of models. They've got their own hardware. They've got everything they, that you as a user would need to do AI. And their, their management software is really powerful as well. Um, you know, I, I, as I mentioned to you before the podcast, I'm, I'm moving, uh, you know, steadfastly and, and deliberately into this space. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the question really is, 
Um, how, how does one gain knowledge from data that's already in the system? That's what AI is, and that's what machine learning is. But in addition to that, uh, you know, as, as far as the, the architecture goes, Keith, you're talking about a consumption-based model. And, um, you know, yeah, so, so that's, a, that's a different piece of the equation. But how does VMware and, and how does Kubernetes fit into this as well? Uh, Kubernetes is, is the under is the underlayment for Kubeflow, and a lot of these ML ops solutions are, are are all based on Kubernetes. Yeah, you beat me to the punch, but but it's uh, it's really quite interesting what's been going on, and the maturation of what is again a truly nascent um, architecture. Where is it going? You know, I I don't know if we need the three laws of of robotics. Uh, you know. Asimov doesn't yet enter into this, but, you know, I think it's uh, it's interesting and it's potentially scary to a certain extent. Right. We've got to oversee it and see what we can uh, what we can control in these architectures as well. There are plenty of enabling technologies that have really made this a reality. I mean, you mentioned GPUs and GPUs are certainly an important aspect of this. But the data, man, it's just, we are getting to a point where we're accumulating so much data. We never knew, we we never even knew we had this much data in, in the past. I mean, petabytes, we, we are talking to customers that, you know, set up a petabyte of storage on their floor, right? These guys are insane. You couldn't do that 10, 15 years ago. You'd, you'd be insane. You'd have to have, you know, a data center, right? We're not talking four racks. We're talking a data center. Nowadays, it's it, the petabytes of data are coming in, and and the question is, what do you do with it? And AI is the answer. Exactly, you have to gain leverage, and uh, and and Splunk is uh, could could be a big part of that as well. Certainly, that was the answer to these equations a few years ago. Um, you know, but but that a petabyte of data is. Uh, it, it, the infrastructure for a petabyte of storage is a whole lot less than it used to be in terms of sheer rack space. And, and, and again, in terms of IOPS, all of these things are, you know, relevant conversations to have. But again, as I say, it, 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 and to echo your point, Ray, it's, it's about leveraging that technology and that, um, that data to gain useful information. And, and, and these, you know, that's what that's what's happening. I mean, every time I, I'm looking at these, I try to look at research every every week or so. And, and it used to be every once in a while, there'd be a new ML version of, of an opportunity in this sort of discussion. And now all of a sudden now it's like half a dozen, if not more, every time I go down this path to look at what's going on. Oh, we're using ML ops and microscopy. We're, we're using ML ops and satellite picture understanding. We're using ML ops and in, in COVID, uh, you know, diagnostics and stuff like that. We're, it's 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 just amazing all this stuff that's coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's going to be very intriguing to see what happens, which is really the reason that I'm diving into this space. The critical thing, I think, from my perspective is that, you know, all this stuff is happening, but it's happening uh, to some extent outside the enterprise. When do, you, when do we think to see 
the enterprise start adopting some of these, uh, some of the machine learning and AI technologies? I mean, I think it's happening. It's slowly but surely, but it's still pretty, pretty early on that uh, adoption cycle. Yeah, it, it, I think it is. Um, and, and the future, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of this uh, knowledge gaining that, that we don't know about yet, but we're going to. And I, I think it's very exciting. I, you know, I, I am, I'm looking forward to seeing what this means. And, and there are a lot of um, sort of architectures in a box that are, that are pervading the, the space much in the, in the way that the uh, VMware based converged architectures did in the past, the, the V blocks and the, um, who knows? Yeah, I mean, so certainly NVIDIA has taken this uh, bull by the horn with their own solutions, their own hardware solutions and stuff like that. So it's, it's and, and, and the storage vendors are playing to that crowd to some extent by packaging their own storage with, uh, with NVIDIA. And NetApp was, a, was an early adopter of that, but certainly not the last. I was talking to a storage provider not too long ago, and um, they're not sold. Some of them are just not sold on the, the challenges uh, and, and the viability of, of these sort of roll your own uh, AI solutions, even when it comes to like the bleeding edge storage providers. Uh, yeah, we need to, we need to have the, those kind of IOPS that they can present. But, um, you know, I, I am finding that uh, the, the differentiations um, for these uh, for these solutions are in two two areas. Certainly, the storage is is definitely one of them, but it's also the management layer. And um, you know the the Nvidia Pod stuff uh, has a, a robust management layer, and and those are being rolled into a lot of solutions. In fact, I would go so far as to say, very few of the solutions don't involve. The, the NVIDIA architectures on the server side. But, but, this, but the storage, the storage is going to be what makes, uh, you know, Pure's Airy different from HPE's solution. Right, right. I mean, yeah, so to a large extent, I think there are two places where this is happening. And, and, and you know, on-prem on these with uh, an NVIDIA pods or, and, and those sorts of solutions, it's certainly one approach to that, and there are going to be customers out there that do that sort of stuff. But the other place is the cloud. Yeah, right. Well, if you don't want to dive into, a, let's just—I'm throwing a number out there. I don't know. Have I don't have any idea really what the uh, what the cost is of the various solutions. They're expensive. But <laughs> let's just say a million dollar architecture just for AI, yeah. um, and and if you can rent space, as Keith was talking about earlier on a, you know, a, a Google platform solution that um, that does the job for you, or if you can rent space uh, on a cloud, a, an Azure solution, AWS solution, well, that might be your entry point, but it might not be where you end up. And, and the, the sheer reliance on horsepower, uh, on processing power, and on storage could place one of these uh, cloud-based solutions way out of reach financially when you stretch it out over the life of a product. That's what makes the, the VMware announcement so interesting in, in my mind, because now they're starting to think, okay, AI is starting to be more consumed in the enterprise 
we have to have you know some serious support for these things so by moving towards uh, you know GPU and multi-GPU support and, and a VMware server, by moving to MIG, which is a multi-multi, you know, it's effectively GPU virtualization. By moving to have you know adopt NVIDIA's, I, and it's not clear in my mind if they're adopting the whole NVIDIA management framework or what they're bringing, but they're bringing in a lot of NVIDIA, NVIDIA pro, you know pieces and process, processes into the internals of VMware. Right, right, and and but where does that leave AMD in this equation? AMD, ah, uh, you know they're not stepping. They're not. AMD's a, a large organization that has their own, you know, their own stuff. But they have got their own GPUs, and a lot of those GPUs can be used in in this sort of framework as well. It's uh, you know, it's obviously a question of CUDA compatibility or or that sort of stuff. Exactly right. But, uh, the real question is where does that leave Intel? Intel is not really a GPU main, you know, main player in any of this space oh i think uh the we were talking about intel's deep pockets recently i, I think we're gonna find that intel has answers yeah, i think what intel the answer that intel has is really by making their cpus more gpu like and by making you know more functionality they, they've done stuff with their dd boost and things of that nature to try to make it more uh, deep learning eligible but you know, there's, there's two parts of this coin. There's the training side and there's the inferencing side. If they could if they could tack the inferencing side, they'd be fine. Yeah, so VMware, I mean, I'm sorry, Intel will be fine on the, on. they have a very solid story of talking about generalization of inference and doing kind of building frameworks and being able to do uh, AI on general compute. Not everyone needs the processing power of a GPU not every problem is GPU size. So Intel has a very good story to tell around that. Going a little bit back to the Kubernetes story, and I was listening to the, I was looking, I was listening to the uh, NetApp, uh, some of the NetApp story, and NetApp and, and, and NVIDIA together actually have a really good story. But NetApp has actually worked on some really cool stuff from, uh, as I've dealt with HPC and AI and HPC version control and CI/CD containerization of the algorithms and the process and even the data sets is a big deal. When you think about being able to take snapshots, storage snapshots of date of, of of results and data sets and combine them in a CI/CD uh, workflow, and you can look back at revisions and say, you know what, we got. We, this result with this version of the data, et cetera. The whole versioning thing becomes a lot easier if you can snapshot everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it is a big, big deal. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole ML ops to some extent is, you know, keeping the, the, the model, the data, and the inferencing in, in, in lockstep, right, and all that stuff. And versioning is critical to that, critical to that. Well, we could talk about AI all day, I think, but we got one more topic to discuss. Yes. What is that topic? I think it's work from home. And why is that important, Matt? Because uh, the pandemic has changed everybody's lives, particularly in this industry. And, um, you know, I, delivering solutions for the enterprise employee, uh, uh, you know, we're kind of there when, it, when we look at things like delivering desktops via VMware or Citrix. 
uh, we're our remote access troubles, uh, old school VPN solutions are, you know, they're as archaic as, as, you know, any other old solution. Um, I think that where we have to start considering things is what's the future going to look like and are people ever going to go back into the office as a full-time um, uh, role or is, is that going to, forgive the expression, remain hybrid? I think I think the challenge is you know we've we've kind of gotten beyond the technology. Yeah, there's still some some nuances there that could be better. Zoom and and things uh, exist, but the, I think the challenge now is what happens to the rest of the world, offices, downtown office space, conventions. Does the convention still make sense? I mean, I was reading an article the other day that said. You know, the nice thing about virtual conventions, it opens up the world. People from Africa, people from Asia, people from the U.S., all these guys can now attend these conferences without having to really spend the money and time to do it. Not only that, the, the diversity it adds to those sorts of things is just impressive. So there, I, I, have mixed, I have mixed feelings about it. Our virtual event back in 2020, we had 50% gender representation, equal gender representation. 50%. Yeah, my from a uh, speaker perspective, not from an attendee perspective. So, uh, my keynote speaker was uh, Karen Lopez, uh, and I had, from a sponsor's perspective, I pushed the sponsors to make sure that we had gender diversity. Uh, from a sponsor uh, sponsor perspective, uh, I was able to get first time speakers who never even dreamed of speaking at a conference. We were able to coach them through their sessions because it was pre-recorded so they could put their first best foot forward. But I, I literally just dropped off of an AWS uh, analyst session for uh, their storage announcements because it was just non-engaging. It was something um, um, I literally said, you know what, this could have been the, you know, we, there's the equivalent. It could have been an email. This could have been a email to link to a YouTube video. Uh, if you have a captive audience, you have to find a way to engage that audience. And I have not seen a virtual event that is, is engaging a audience. I don't know what the appeal is for me to 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 uh, uh, choose a while four to eight hours of my day on a day to to engage a virtual event. So the question the question you have to ask is is the alternative is if I'm sitting in. Las Vegas, God forbid, for, for four to eight hours listening to vendors talk about their product. Is that more engaging or less engaging than doing that over the? No, what's more engaging, more, what's more engaging is that, you know, uh, we'll look at each other, Ray, like, man, this is ridiculous. And we'll go out into the hallway and have a conversation. <laughs> right. And, well, that's, that's the problem is the lack of human interaction. Yes. And, and I agree with you, Keith. Uh, that's for, for me for years now. That's been the best part of these trade shows. Yeah, the face-to-face um, -face meeting. I, you know, yeah, I went to AWS re and I didn't even have a ticket. And then it was, you know, it was a full show for me. So the the that part of the virtual thing, until we figure that out, you know, I just got an email today. Uh, uh, HPE discovers the 28th to the 30th in person. So we're going to keep. Uh, we're going to keep kind of filling it around until we figure it out because without this human interaction is just the, this content is just noise. I saw it was a, there was new technology that effectively it's like a phone booth. It's, it's, it's a holographic display of a person. <laughs> 
and you can look and look at people and stuff and and it's it's maybe maybe that's what's needed i don't know i'm not sure that it's probably a million bucks to put on <laughs> per person or something like that you know i can't envision standing in a phone booth for an entire trade show though well you know and i just bought a uh quest uh i mean the Oculus Oculus. Quest too. and uh you know what it's just the community isn't there the network is not there it's facebook centric and i have no desire to uh to give this i don't have any desire to give my business community over to facebook yeah yeah, yeah i'm with I you i agree but i mean the work from home thing the other the other part of this is you know what what what's going on with offices what you know so downtowns are all you know to a large extent based on offices right i mean you look at some place like chicago there's not a lot of manufacturing happening downtown yeah yeah there's, there's you know a gazillion feet of office space what's going to happen to some place like that yeah that's a really that's a very good question i don't know if i'm too worried about it because eventually i would have i would have moved out of chicago anywhere and to a more <laughs> rural area so it's you know chicago's problem but that is a very significant what happens to all of this office space? Uh, I think uh, the I forget who it was. It was I, I, I don't know if it was Anheuser Busch or one of the beer companies. Uh, they've gone back to three don't three days in an office, two days out. Uh, we'll never go back to all day in one hundred percent, but I think uh, all virtual actually doesn't. It's it, I think it's a great option, but it's it, it also I don't think it's sustainable. We need human interaction. And and the challenge is getting that human interaction virtualized, and that, that's yeah I agree it's a real problem. I I I've, you know I've been here since two thousand four. I've been doing work from home, and it, it it it's great. It works fine. But every once in a while, I just want to meet people. I want to go have breakfast with people, or lunch, or dinner, or something like that. It's uh, that is a challenge. I agree. We we should all get together in Austin or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or maybe St. Louis would work. I, I don't know. Someplace. I don't know about yeah. that. <laughs> All right. I'm a Cubs fan. What can I say? Chicago, Chicago works for the three of us. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, it'd be nice to do this live. Maybe next year's wrap-up will be live. We'll, we'll, oh, we'll that would be that. so nice. We'll, we'll, be at re, we'll be at reInvent, and we'll do a reInvent recap and a uh, end-of-the-year great beer. Maybe, maybe. All right. Well, this, listen, this has been great. Thanks. Thanks a lot for, for being on, on my show as always. Of course. Thank you. Of course. It's always, I, I, you know what? We, the, we kind of brought down the energy level. I thought we should have ended on Kubernetes. That way we could have ended on a high note. <laughs> I don't know if I could have handled that, Keith. I mean, it was, it was so much discussion there. We could probably, yeah, we'd probably have to take half the time on Kubernetes alone. I think we did. We, we did, but it was, yeah. <laughs> You're right. All right. That's it for now. Bye, man. Bye, Keith. Bye, Ray. Bye, Ray. Until next time. Next time, we will talk to the system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the 